0: In the beginning, it was a dream, now it is a reality. The Museum of the Bible in Washington, D.C. is now ready for the public. And just a few minutes ago, a dedication of ceremony actually started. You're looking at live pictures from what's going on right now. Um, it officially launches the museum. That is the first of its kind in terms of sheer size, scale, and quality devoted to the Judeo-Christian holy book. All told, it's a nearly billion-dollar project. If you include the construction and the exhibits, The building's exterior calling card, the 38-foot-tall, 16-ton brass doors etched with the first words of the Bible, the book of Genesis. And the high-tech entrance hallway features a 140-foot LED ceiling screen. This is a 430,000-square-foot building, a project that is the brainchild of millionaire businessman Steve Green. It's just thrilling to see people come through uh, enjoying this uh, labor of love that has been going on for years now. So I have been blessed individually by this book multiple ways, and I just want
1: other people to consider it.
0: Now, early on, there was controversy around how some of the antiquities were acquired. Green admits mistakes were made, but the museum is following all standard guidelines. Now, the exhibits focus on three things, the Bible's history, its narrative, and its impact. There are several biblical research scholars working with the museum, and I spoke with one who said there is no other book in history that has had as much influence on the world. It has an unrivaled status as a moral authority, especially in the Western culture.
1: It has uh, an impact on, uh, on people's lives in some cases, um, and a broader impact on, on the way people think, the, the moral categories in which we think. Whatever the status of our belief or lack of belief, are in the West um, going to be derived from the Bible. So it has a broader reach than any other book.
0: Interesting fact, 95% of homes in the nation have a Bible.
1: Well, the Museum of the Bible in Washington, D.C., if you heard this story, uh, it cost approximately $1 billion, hundreds of thousands of square feet, and it contains eight stories simply to talk about the Bible. Now, my question is, why? Why would so much money be spent? Why would it be such a dramatic focus on this book? And I'll tell you quite simply, friends, it's because the Bible is the most important book in the history of the world. The Bible is the most printed, the most digitized book in human history, and quite simply, it is, as it says, the Word of God. Uh, In 2 Timothy chapter 3, I'd like to begin this morning, and this passage forms the foundation for how we view the Bible, and I will elaborate on that. But 2 Timothy chapter 3, uh, it says this in verse 15, you have been taught the Holy Scriptures, Scripture is another word for Bible, God's Word. You've been taught God's Word from childhood, and they have given you the wisdom. Now, notice this distinction. To receive the salvation that comes by trusting in Christ Jesus. This is the purpose of the Bible, so that you and I as human beings could be delivered from the power of sin, from its eternal judgments of sin, and experience salvation by trusting in Christ and Christ alone. Verse 16 says, all scripture is inspired by God. In other words, God moved on human beings and caused them to write the Bible in, its, in their particular context, though it speaks to us today. Uh, it teaches us what is true and makes us realize what's wrong in our life. The Bible contains God's perspective on right and wrong. Right and wrong is not individually determined or even determined by the vote of the majority or the vote of the politician or uh, the, the, the opinion of the expert. But God's Word declares of itself, as we'll talk about in a moment, but it declares of itself that it is literally the Word of God, the standards of right and wrong. And today I want to tell you the Bible story from Genesis to Revelation. We want to look through the pages of this most popular book in the history of the world, and I want to share with you its main message, what I'll call the thread of redemption, how God has restored the separation between God and man through Jesus Christ. God's Word speaks to modern society today just like it did to those to whom it was originally written because it is timeless, authoritative, and absolute truth. And I've entitled this message, The B-I-B-L-E. And it's after a little kid's song, the B-I-B-L-E. That's the book for me. I stand alone on the Word of God, the B-I-B-L-E. So let's talk about it this morning. My intent is to give you a a, a sense of perspective. If you hold your Bible in your hand, for example, the Bible that I used, this is a spirit-filled life study Bible, great study notes in it. Uh, It's about 1,800 and some pages. That's a lot of book. I mean, it covers from Genesis in the beginning all the way through the end of time in the book of Revelation. Uh, I want to help you understand how it fits together. I want to understand you how these parts sometimes, even the minutiae of its detail and its commandments, what's the overall message and its theme? If I could begin with some Bible facts... The Bible though is as we understand it is one book, but it is a compilation of 66 books written by about 44 authors over some 1500 to 2000 years. It tells the story of God and mankind, and I say mankind broadly, be not just gender male and female, but for all of humanity. It is the story of God and humanity of time and eternity. There are two vision due to two divisions in the Bible. The Old Testament or Older Testament and the New Testament, the Newer. The word testament means covenant. It is God's covenant between himself and humanity. We interpret the Old Testament through the New. For example, if you just opened your Bible and you read in Leviticus and you saw someone make an animal sacrifice for a sin you'd think, well, maybe I should do that too. But no, the New Testament tells us that Jesus Christ fulfilled the responsibility of this animal that was shed to atone and temporarily cover sin. So we read the old through the lens of the new... Uh, The Bible, biblical story is centered in the Middle East, particularly the nation of Israel. Uh, It spills over into Egypt and Africa. It makes its way into Asia, the story, and it goes westward towards Italy and Spain. The Bible literally covers the whole Mediterranean world. Uh, In the Old Testament, God's people are called the Jews. In the New Testament, God's chosen people are Christians or collectively called the church. And the most important character in the Bible, obviously, is God himself. If you would ask me, Pastor, what is the overall message of this book? This book that literally has captured the attention of humanity since the day it was written has shaped the foundation of civilization. What is its overall message? And I would say simply this, is that God desires relationship with the people he created. Let me say it again. God wants relationship with you and I. And sometimes we view the Bible as this holy book, and and it's surrounded with hush and awe, and it's only spoken in perhaps Latin, or we would use it in forms of liturgy. But the Bible opens the door for relationship. Uh, We celebrated this Thanksgiving with our first grandchild, and uh, the moment he came in the door, uh, I'm holding him. No, I'm holding him, and it's a little tug-of-war between his little baby But as soon as he left and he got away, went to see his other set of grandparents, and I texted my granddaughter, Brittany, uh, my granddaughter, my daughter-in-law, Brittany, and I said, does he miss me? And then I said, she said, yes. And I said, does he miss me the most? And she said, of course. But I just, I wanted another picture. I I wanted to be with him. I wanted relationship with him. And I want to suggest to you that your father in heaven wants relationship with you. And the Bible is not just a group of commandments about this angry God that's gonna smack you if you mess up. He's a God that wants relationship. And the problem is, as we look at this entire biblical story, sin entered in the human race through Adam and Eve, sin separated us from God. All the evil that we know in the world and all its heartache came because of sin. And the rest of the Bible is the story of God's restoring that, building a bridge over our sin through Jesus Christ so we could spend eternity in a very real place called heaven. That is the story of the Bible. Now, I'd like to, this morning, begin by sharing with you some overview of the Scripture. As we look first in the Old Testament, there are 39 books of the Old Testament. If we look by categories, if I could give you kind of four big categories... The first one is the Pentateuch, or the Law of Moses, five books of the Bible. This has got Genesis, and then it has the early history of the Jews. Actually, if you wanted to simplify the whole Old Testament, which is about two-thirds of the Bible, see it as the Book of Beginnings in Genesis and the history of the Jewish people. And what the Jews brought to the world is the chosen people. They brought God's Law, or the Law of Moses, where we get the Ten Commandments. And it also it becomes the Jewish people were the lineage of Christ. If you were to look at the first uh, page of Matthew and Luke's gospel, you would see literally that in one of them, they trace the lineage of Jesus all the way back to Adam, and the Jewish people, of course, are, are God's chosen. So that's the Pentateuch, five books. Then we have the history of Israel. That's 12 books. It's the Kings. It's the Chronicles. Uh, it's later history. It's Ezra. Uh, it's Nehemiah. Uh, these books describe how obedience or disobedience to the covenant, the law of Moses, either brought blessing or it brought judgment on the nation of Israel. Then there's the poetry or the writing books. There's five. We know it best by Psalms and Proverbs. Uh, uh, Psalms and Proverbs rooted in this concept is that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Uh, I read my Bible every day, virtually every day. Uh, if you were to, We have, of course, a Bible app that you can download to read your Bible. Uh, it's in the back of the chairs. But let's just say if you just had said, for one month I'm going to read the Bible, I want to get something out of it, you could start in the book of Proverbs. 31 chapters, a chapter a day. And the sense of wisdom, and I'll read you a verse from Ecclesiastes, written by Solomon, the wisest man of the Old Testament. And he said this, After Solomon tried everything in life to be happy, education, experiences, pleasure, buildings, knowledge, everything, to be happy, he said this. He said, it's all been heard, and here's the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep His commandments. This is the duty of all mankind. Why? Because God one day will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it's good or whether it's evil. So wouldn't that be great to tell your kids at Christmas? Your grandkids, and they come to leave you, what is the last thing you want them to remember? How about this? God forbid, but if you're standing on your deathbed and your family gathers around you and you want to share something with them, don't you think God's wisdom is better than change to Geico or change to State Farm Insurance? Are you with me today? You know, I mean, there's things that are important in this life, but there's things that are ultimately important in the world. Well, that's the writings. And then we've got what's called the prophetic books. There are five major prophets and 12 minor prophets, and the only difference between the major and the minor is the length of the book. Obviously, Isaiah, much longer than the prophet Nahum or Habakkuk. Now, with these books, there's a message of the prophets. The prophets talk about, again, in 700 years from when Moses gave the law up until the time of the exile, they tried to call the people, get back on track. If they were in trouble, if they were in a mess, if they were sinning, the prophets would say, "Get back on track." And if you get back on track, God's blessing will follow you. So, but the most important thing that the prophets shared was they predicted the future, but they also talked about the coming Messiah, Jesus Christ. And I read in an article, a scholarly article from CBN, and they suggested that there are 300 prophecies. 300 prophecies or predictions in the Old Testament, hundreds of years before Jesus Christ was born, that talk about his death, his burial, his resurrection, and his life. Now, one in particular, Micah 5.2. Micah speaks of the town Bethlehem. From this town Bethlehem, a small town, the Judean village, that a Messiah, the Deliverer, would come to them. And lo and behold, when you read the gospel account, some 800 years later, we see in Matthew 2.1, guess where Jesus was born? Yeah, in Bethlehem. Now listen, if you're not necessarily a Christian or if you're skeptical about the claims of the Bible, I would suggest to you one of the greatest convincing moments is to do an in-depth study of the writings of the prophets and the predictions that would happen some hundreds and hundreds of years later. Uh, listen, it is the odds of these prophecies being fulfilled are astronomical. Uh, Even eight prophecies, a statistician said this, it's as likely a chance as eight prophecies about a person 800 years apart would all be fulfilled in one person like Christ, as it were, if you were to cover the whole state of Texas in a foot of silver dollars and have one silver dollar and you wanted a person to find that. Can you imagine that? That's the odds of of a person fulfilling these prophecies. Now, let's go to the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 1, with that background, the first verse of the Bible says this, Genesis is called the book of Beginnings. "In the beginning, say it with me, God. God created the heavens and the earth." Now stop just a moment. In the beginning, that is the beginning of time, God was preexistent. Uh, 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 some would even teach today about the universe, and they would even say in cosmology, they would say the universe is pre-existing, not so. God was existing before the beginning of time, and God the Creator established everything you and I see in terms of of matter, in terms of life. God is the source of life. The Bible begins with one God revealed in three persons God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. There are not three gods. But just like the chemical equation for water, H2O, water can be a solid, ice, a steam, gas, or water can be a liquid depending on the the temperature variable. But there is one God. Now, in Colossians chapter 1, the manifestation of God, Jesus the Son, listen to what Colossians in the New Testament says of Christ as creator. It says, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. In other words, if you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus when he walked the earth. For by him, by Christ, all things were created in heaven and on earth. Jesus is before all things. In other words, Jesus didn't begin on Christmas morning. Jesus existed before he left heaven and came to earth and took on the form of a man. But it goes on to say, in Christ all things hold together. In other words, when you look at the forces, whether, whether it's the distance, do you realize if the earth were to come a little closer to the sun, we'd burn up. If we drifted a little further away, we'd freeze. Just a little tilt, and the whole planet would be upset. Well, what keeps the universe in perfect orbit? Jesus holds all things together. Wow. Uh-huh. The forces of aerodynamics that you hope are going to work when you're in an airplane. Come on now. Why? Why can they be counted on consistently? Jesus holds all things together. The cycles of food production. I mean, all the things that go on around us. You and I live in a world that can scare us sometimes. The UN published a report ten years ago, and in the report they said in the next ten years that the Earth was going to increase by two degrees centigrade, and it was virtually going to be destroyed. Well, guess what? It didn't happen. And you could sit around and think about what if North Korea bombs us, what if Iran gets a nuclear bomb, an electromagnetic pulse, all these things. Or you can simply say, Lord, the world's too big for me to take care of. I'm grateful that in you all things are held together. Come on, give him a, a good hand today. But it's here in verse 20 that I want you to see the thread of redemption that holds the Bible all together, that brings the pieces together. It is through Christ that to reconcile all things to God, whether it's on earth or heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Now, we're going to continue with that theme in a moment. But again, God created time, God created matter, God created life. He spoke and creation appeared. I cannot imagine what it was like before Genesis 1-1. I cannot imagine a state of nothingness. Because nothing, as I understand it, is bounded by some time-space continuum, yet God lives beyond that. Now, listen to the Scripture. God created the first human beings, Adam and Eve. The Garden of Eden, the Tigris-Euphrates Valley, Genesis Genesis 2-7, the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. You and I did not arbitrarily evolve from some primal ooze with no purpose or destiny. We are created. When I toured the Smithsonian uh, uh, Museum uh, about the origins of man and and studied cultural anthropology as I walked through those hallways, room after room of skulls, the only thing that was missing from this great museum was no reference of God. The secular world that you and I have been trained in, our children are trained in, does not start with the God who created it starts with some process. It starts with a big bang. It starts with an explosion of a planet and a pre-existing universe. My friend, it takes more faith to believe that than it does that there's an intelligent designer. Come on now. A God that created with purpose. And you and I are a part of that. Man was, not, man was created for relationship. But when man fell in the Garden of Eden, when sin came in, everything changed. In Genesis 2.16, God commanded the man... You can eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day you eat it you shall surely die. die. Well, let me tell you this. Adam didn't die. He lived physically on this earth a little longer, but he did die spiritually at that moment. Death, another translation of the word, is separation from God. He was separated from God at the moment of sin, and he died physically many years later. You see, sin brings separation. Adam hid in shame. He was driven from the garden. It happened because Satan, the devil, Lucifer, a fallen angel fell from heaven, tempted Adam and Eve to follow him. And when they said yes to him, when we exercised free will as human beings, that's when evil came into the world. And if you want a simple answer for why good things happen to bad people, why people die, why there are hurricanes, why there are wildfires, why there's destruction on the planet, why there's rape and violence and pillage, it's because sin is in the world. Come on now. And until one day, until that is put behind us, sin affects the human race. But when Adam and Eve were driven from the garden in in Genesis 3, 21, God did not send them out uncovered, as it were, but the Lord made clothing from animal skins for Adam and his wife. Notice the thread of redemption. He didn't go to Kmart that's closing. Come on, how many know that, at least in our town, their store is closing. He didn't go there and get animal skins. An animal lost its life. You say, well, pastor, that's, I mean... I don't understand that part of the Bible. I'll tell you, sin is serious. It's so serious, it bears life for life. Hebrews 9.22 says, "...without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins." So this animal being shed atoned for or covered the sins of Eve and through Adam and Eve and throughout the Old Testament, this blood covering would happen through the shed of uh, blood of an animal on a recurring basis until Christ came so ultimate forgiveness could be offered. And the rest of the Bible is about God's attempt to restore relationship between God and man. Now, let's move from the book of beginnings. Let's look at the rest of the Old Testament and see it as the history of the Jewish people, the history of the nation of Israel, God's chosen people. And God chose the Jews for two reasons. Number one, to give them the law, God's Old Testament standard, including the Ten Commandments, but also to be a part of the lineage of Christ. We forget sometimes that the Bible is not just a spiritual book, but it's a history book. And if you were to go back and look at the the uh, genealogy in both Matthew and Luke, you would see in one of those genealogies the genealogy of Jesus Christ is traced all the way back to the first man, Adam. See, Jesus was the second Adam. So this is the Jews. Uh, this was their role. Now, in terms of the Jewish people, let's kind of understand it this way: uh, they had patriarchs. Patriarchs were like the grandfathers of the faith, and it started with Abraham. Uh, we're still in Genesis, but we're now looking at the Jews going forwards. Both the Christian religion, the Jewish religion, as well as the Muslim religion, looks to Abraham as a, as a significant person in their faith. Uh, Abraham, though, from the New Testament perspective, Romans 4, uh, we, says this. He says, our salvation depends on faith. In other words, you cannot earn your way into heaven in order that the promise may rest on grace, God's free gift, to one who shares the faith of Abraham, the father of us all. So what does that mean? We don't get to heaven by being good. You cannot do enough good things to earn your way into heaven. Jesus said uh, in John three sixteen, God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes. That's right, believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. So again, Abraham was a key figure that showed us we can't be good enough to get to heaven. He had a son named Isaac. Isaac, very central in terms of the promised child. I don't have time, but if you were to read Genesis 22, the Jews call it the Akidah, the binding of Isaac. You'll see the most graphic depiction in the Old Testament of the substitutionary lamb that took the place, of the sa- that became the sacrifice that would one day foreshadow Christ. Isaac had a, a, a knucklehead son named Jacob, and how many know everybody here is a knucklehead <laughs> at least at yeah. some level. Well, God turned the knucklehead Jacob into Israel, who became the founder of the nation of Israel, 12 tribes. And uh, from there, we know how the story unfolds. You've got these Jews. They're beginning to grow in the promised land. And lo and behold, God supernaturally sends a famine. I mean, not all bad things have a bad purpose behind it. Sometimes God can use something bad and turn it into good. So it's a famine in the land. One of Israel's children, Joseph, is kind of forcibly sent. He's betrayed by his brothers to Egypt. And then God brings the children of Israel from the promised land to Egypt, which is a type of the world from which a deliverer will come. So we've got the children of Israel. They're there as heroes. He saves the world. They go to Egypt with 70. And over about three or 400 years, they grow into a nation of 1 to 2 million people. And now they are the slaves building Pharaoh's pyramids. And how many know now the Deliverer comes on hand. His name is Moses. And he says, let my people go. Of course, you know the story, Charlton Heston. Well, you remember the last plague. Again, let's think about this thread of redemption going through the Scripture. The last plague is what's called the Passover. In Exodus chapter 12, Moses said each family must choose a lamb for a sacrifice. Take some of the blood, smear it on the doorframe of the house. This is the Lord's Passover. Now listen, verse 12. On that night, God says, I will execute judgment over the gods of Egypt. But when I see the blood, I will... Pass over. What's the symbolism of that? You remember when John the Baptist introduced Jesus at Jesus' baptism? He said, Behold the Lamb, Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. There is continuity between Genesis and Revelation. Christ is the central figure. So God gave the Jews, once they're out of Egypt, they're wandering in the wilderness, they get the law of Moses, the Ten Commandments, and God's commands. So what's the purpose of the Old Testament law for me as a New Testament believer? Galatians 3.24 says, this Old Testament law was a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ, so we may be justified by faith. In other words... They had this elaborate law that covered everything from catfish to pork ribs. Are you with me today? I mean, I, mean, I mean, what you did on certain days and this sacrificial system and all this stuff to show man he could never be good enough to go to heaven. No man, no woman could ever be good enough. We need God's gift of grace. Well, you know the story there, of course. They go into the promised land under Joshua. They're ruled by what's called a theocracy, which is... A king and the priest, that is, civil government and spiritual government, coming together under the judges, under the kings. We see Israel's great success under the kingdom of David, the kingdom of Solomon, and then it all falls apart. Because the prophets warned for 700 years... From the beginning of Moses until the final exile, that, guys, if you mess up and you keep messing up and you keep on messing up some more, finally there's going to come a day where God's going to judge you and you'll be driven from the promised land. And that is exactly what happened. Lo and behold, uh, Nebuchadnezzar comes. He takes the promised people to Babylon. But the wonderful news is Jeremiah the prophet prophesies they're only going to be there 70 years. Now, that's amazing. I cannot predict what will happen in 70 years. The world is trying to predict it. The world is telling us now, if you read, that artificial intelligence is pretty much going to make human beings unnecessary. They're going to take our jobs, and I mean, it's just, they're trying to think about what the future is going to be like. But lo and behold, what Jeremiah said came true. After 70 years, God raised up a pagan king named Cyrus, and Cyrus said, send the Jews back to the promised land because I want to be blessed too. Well, that's where the latter part of the Old Testament ends up. The Jews come home. They rebuild their temple. They rebuild their wall under Nehemiah and Ezra. And uh, that's kind of how the Old Testament ends up. The Old Testament ends in the book of Malachi, one of the minor prophets. And guess what Malachi does? Malachi looks ahead in history, and he sees 400 years down the road, the forerunner of Christ is coming, is John the Baptist. And the Old Testament closes... 400 years of silence, and the New, the New Testament opens its pages with, guess who? Jesus Christ, the central figure. Yeah. Now, yeah. Think, about, think about this. The New Testament, uh, probably a fourth to a third of your Bible. In the New Testament, there's 27 books. Four books are the Gospels. They talk about Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, and I want you to remember that the Bible is a historical book. It's not just a spiritual book, but the Bible is, is the most well-preserved book of antiquity. We have no problem believing about Shakespeare and doing plays and the Iliad and all these different things. And we take them for granted, but there is probably 10,000 to 1 uh, in terms of preserved artifacts or copies of the Bible as opposed to any book in antiquity. It is a historical book that records the, the life of Christ. After the life of Christ, we see the book of Acts which is the beginning of the church and how it begins to go around the world. And then we've got the epistles, these 21 letters. For example, Ephesians and Colossians and Philippians. And these letters tell a story. They, they, they help people correct their problems, Christians, but they also give us doctrine in what's true to believe. And the, and the Bible closes with the book of Revelation, which is a book about the end times. Now let me go back just a second and, and, and as we begin with the Gospels. Uh, the Gospels, four Gospels, Christ the Savior is born. These Gospels talk about the life of Christ Jesus. How many know Jesus Christ? Christ is not his last name. Jesus was a common name. Many people were named Jesus, symbolizing that he identifies with man. Christ means Messiah, Savior. So he is both God and he is both man, fully God and fully man. I cannot explain it, but I believe it. He was born to the Virgin Mary. His public ministry began when he was about 30 years old. We don't know much about his early days, but his his public ministry only lasted three years. And it had such great effect that today, in a world that's got perhaps 7 billion people on it, they say over 2 billion are Christians today. Because of this one man's ministry three years on the earth. His miracles attest to his divinity. He had thousands of disciples, but he chose 12 to be in his inner circle to he would entrust the salvation or the, or the gospel proclamation of the world. Now listen to this. When Jesus rose from the dead, after a few days on earth, he ascended back to heaven. So the Bible tells us that right now you and I are here in this church building, but Jesus is at the right hand of God the Father waiting for the word to come back to earth. You see, one day time as we know it will be no more. Right now, uh, I'm thinking about decorating my Christmas tree today. Thanksgiving is over. Uh, That mammoth pile of garbage has been uh, removed from our home, and now we're thinking about starting another one with Christmas. Are you with me today? And and, and then kids are going to get out at Christmas, and then we're going back to school, and and my daughter Rebecca is going to know what college is going to accept her, and Dad's going to be thrilled when it's a big scholarship. I mean, you know, all these things. Uh, In a short period of time, ducks will begin migrating from the north to the south. Uh, In a short period of time, it'll be turkey season in the spring. But one day, all that will stop. One day, listen to the words of Jesus in Mark 14. Jesus said, you're going to see me, the Son of Man, seated in the place of power at God's right hand and coming on the clouds of heaven. Jesus is not coming back as a baby in a manger. He's coming back as King of kings and Lord of lords. And one day it'll all be different on this planet. We could spend, listen, every day I have left on earth and talk 24 hours a day about what Christ said, but let me condense it if I can. Jesus' moral teachings, as we see in the Sermon on the Mount, literally shaped the foundation of Western civilization in terms of ethics and values. Time was divided by his birth. You don't see it a lot any longer, but we used to see B.C. before Christ, A.D., a Latin term meaning in the year of our Lord, but now we see B.C.E., before the common era, A.C.E., after the common era. Secular man tries to do everything to get rid of the gospel, just like Pharaoh tried to get rid of the Jewish children, but how many know you can't kill Moses? Just like, just like the governor, Herod, tried to kill all the Jewish babies because the king was born. How I many know God's smart enough to get his child, come on, get him out of town for a few days and bring him back in? I don't care how powerful the United Nations is, how powerful the Republicans or Democrat, or who's on our Supreme Court. How I many know nobody can touch Jesus? Listen, the Bible says, before Jesus Christ, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I don't know about you, but I'm going to choose to bow my knee right now here on planet Earth before I do on that great day of eternity. But listen to what he talked about the two great commandments. I don't know about you, but this book sometimes confuses me. It's thou shalt, thou shalt better not, and if you do, and if you don't. And I think, my golly, I've got to figure out how to treat my wife, how to treat my kids, how to treat my in-laws, how to treat my outlaws, how to treat my enemies, you know, how to, how, how to respond to authority, how to respond to people that work for me, all these things. But Jesus said, let me summarize the whole book. Let me give you two commandments that summarize it all. Let me, let me simplify it. Number one is love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, and all your strength. See, it was more than just go to church an hour a week. It was more than just the the, the service, the liturgy, the, the mass, the whatever you want to call it. It was more than just the rules. It was a relationship. And the second thing, the second commandment, he said, love your neighbor as yourself. How many know we'd have a lot less problems in the world? We'd have a lot less killing on the streets of Chicago. We just passed 600 for the year. The streets of Texarkana. How many know the violence? The prisons are filled to overflowing. Uh, In Hollywood right now, the big issue that they're discussing now is about uh, sexual harassment and rape and all this stuff that goes through our culture. We'd have a lot less of that if we lived by the second great commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. See, this comes from Jesus But what I think is arguably the most important thing is what he said about salvation. In Matthew 20, Jesus said, the Son of Man, that's Christ, he'll be delivered to the chief priests and scribes. He'll be mocked, flogged, crucified, and raised on the third day. In other words, Jesus knew that he would come to this earth for one reason, to be the Passover lamb, to pay the penalty for your sin and mine. He knew it. He said it. He also said in John 14, 6, I am the way, definitive article, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. No other religious teacher, friends, offers the pathway to heaven. You cannot go on a holy jihad and be greeted by 70 virgins in heaven. See, the problem is our sin separates us from God, and it's what Jesus did on that cross you see, if you, you may not like God's commandments, and this is the problem in modern man. We took his commandments off our schools. We'd rather have policemen and guard dogs and metal detectors in our schools, come on now, rather than commandments that are invested in the hearts of our children. But God is the one that makes the rules. This is the underlying problem in secular society. Man wants to be God. And it's that attitude of that spirit, no one will tell me what to do. I make my own rules. But, friends, God is the one that makes the rules in life. And when Jesus said was God's way, our response is to say yes to it or no to it, not to give a third way. Come on, somebody say praise the Lord. Well, and then he gave us this great hope. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Let me move quickly. Now, I did this last night in four hours. I'm going to do it in three this morning. Now, see, that was a joke, and some of you did not even believe that the preacher is funny enough for a joke. I'll be done in just a moment. Let's go to the New Testament, the book of Acts. The early history of the church, it began on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit fell on Jewish believers in the upper room in Jerusalem. Peter was the primary voice. He was the leader of the early church. The epicenter was Jerusalem. The targeted people were Jews. Along about chapter 13, 12, 13 in the book of Acts, the focus shifts. Paul now is the great apostle to the Gentile, the non-Jew. The epicenter goes to Antioch. Uh, the, the, the target is, is all of humanity. And the rest of the New Testament unfolds what began in the book of Acts. Now, let me tell you, uh, if I could give you four words that describe and summarize the book of Acts and the epistles. Again, the epistles were to correct problems in the church, help them get priorities and establish doctrine. But listen to these four words that, that, that encompass the spirit of the New Testament. Mission, message, means, and method. What I mean by that, the New Testament had a mission. It was the Great Commission when Jesus said, go and make disciples of all nations, followers of Christ, baptize them and teach them to observe all of have commanded you. In other words, that's what the Bible is about. When Jesus left this planet, every Christian that was was, uh, uh, represented in the pages of the Scripture was a man or a woman on mission to bring other people to Christ. They were populating heaven. They were making it hard to go to hell from their city. Are you with me today? Their message was simply the good news. The good news in 1 Corinthians 15 is that Christ was crucified, dead and buried, and he rose from the dead. It is somehow that God's God can take that truth that when you hear it. I, heard it, I heard it on April 15th, 1976. I had been raised in church, grateful for it, but how I many know going to church won't make you a Christian? Right. But it was on that day when I humbled myself and I read in that Gideon New Testament. How I many know our society today says, don't give kids New Testaments in school? Our society says, get them out of the hotels. But can I tell you, friends, God's word has the power to change your life. Yeah. Your life will not be changed by psychology today. It will not be changed by Reader's Digest or any other book. But the Bible contains the words of life. And God offers forgiveness through Christ. It is the good news. It was the message of the early church. They had a mission. They had a message. Their means was the same as ours. It was the power and gifts of the Holy Spirit. We're told in Acts chapter 1, Jesus said, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you'll be my witnesses. And the rest of the pages of the Bible, you see men and women and even young boys and girls under the influence of the people and the gospel going forwards. And lastly, their method, method was quite simple. It was to preach the gospel, win souls, make disciples, and plant churches. And that was it. Preach the gospel, win souls, make disciples, and plant churches. Every member was a missionary. Come on now, and let me know if it's good enough for them. It ought to be good enough for us today. Come on, give the Lord a, a good hand this morning. Now, let me close with the book of Revelation. How many have an interest in the book of Revelation, at least at some level? Well, you should because it talks about the future. Listen, if you had a sure bet on where the stock market was going every day of this year, I could make a a lot of money. Come on. If you could just tell me for sure where the Dow is going to be on January 31st, if you could tell me, listen, I could become wealthy beyond my wildest imaginations if I knew what was going to happen in the future. Well, the Bible bears witness. The book of Revelation is a vision given by John the Beloved, It was a little book written in in, in two time frames. It was written to the era of the early church. There were seven churches in Asia Minor, but its message is about the future yet to be. The book of Revelation talks about the Antichrist. It talks about the mark of the beast and a one-world government. And that should concern you, friend. The Bible says one day no one can buy or sell without the mark of the beast you say that's okay. I'll be self-sufficient. I'll grow my garden. Yeah, I grow a garden too. The only problem is all the broccoli gets ready at the same time. Are, are, are you with me today? And most of the seeds are hybrid already today. And even if you grow it, your neighbors will steal it when you're sleeping at night. So, so, so don't think that you can escape this thing. One day it's coming, friends. Is already microchip technology where they're already putting in, the, in the, the hands of people. I'm not suggesting that is the mark of the beast, but I'm assuring you one day, friends, that's how the Antichrist will rule the world. It'll be more than just opening and closing doors and getting access to your checking account. It will be the control, but it's also followed by great persecution. The book of Revelation is a, is a book It's filled with death for many believers because they have to choose whether they're going to give in to the world or they're going to stand strong. But I'm here to tell you today, the Bible says in Revelation 12, they'll conquer the devil by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony, and they'll not love their lives unto death. You see, earth is not my home. My home is yet to come in a real place called heaven. Revelation talks about the rapture of the church, the second coming of Christ. The devil that tempted Eve is the same devil that will be judged in one verse in Revelation, cast into hell. The book of Revelation closes with the end of time and final judgment and the reality of heaven and hell. And I'd be remiss as I close this morning if I didn't tell you what the Bible says about Judgment Day. In Revelation chapter 20, verse 11, there's a picture in the Bible where John the Revelator said, I saw a great white throne, this is God sitting on this throne. And verse 12 said, I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. Everybody will be there. My daughter wrote uh, an essay for a scholarship, and, and, and she wrote about our family's history. My mom told her when her family fled the Baltic state of Latvia in World War II, how she lost her brother and her sister, and they never saw them again. And Rebecca reminds mom of her, her little sister because they didn't even have a picture. Those two kids will be there. George Washington will be there. Julius Caesar, Charles Manson will be there. Abraham Lincoln will be there. Your grandparents will be there. More importantly, you'll be there. And I'll be there. Books are open. These books recorded our life. Everything we thought, everything we said, everything we did, God is recording. You say, well, how could that be? Look at what computers can do today. How in the world does Siri, when I get in my car, she tells me how far it is home and what's the best way to... How does she know I'm going to go home? It's artificial intelligence <laughs> at work. But the point is, God is eclipses any supercomputer. That's right. That's right. Look at what it says. Another book was opened, the book of life. Yeah. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. That's a bad day if you don't know Christ. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. I want to tell your friends, hell is a real place. But the good news is God doesn't want anyone to go there. Only those that have rejected him will find their way. The Bible says, and I'll close here, Revelation 21, one of the last chapters of the Bible, John the Revelator saw a picture of a new heaven and a new earth. John saw a city like New Jerusalem coming down to the earth, and he said, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. And they'll be His people and God will be with them as their God. I jump back to the page of Genesis early on when God walked with Adam in the cool of the day. And they had fellowship. Now we step to the end of time. And once again, God is with His people face to face. The Bible says God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. No death, no pain, no mourning, no crying, uh, no more doctor's appointments, no more cancer. Come on. No more mosquitoes, no more snakes. No more game wardens, no more IRS agents. (laughs) I'm just teasing. But the former things of life are gone. And the last verse of the Bible says this in Revelation 22. Jesus himself said, he who testifies to these things said, surely I am coming soon. And John responded as we will, amen, come Lord Jesus. Come on, give him a big hand today. He's worthy of praise. Why don't you stand to your feet this morning, and I'd like to close with this thought and this question, so what do I do now? Do I simply take a deep breath if the preacher made it in less than three hours, or does God's Word free to have a new impact in my life. Listen to James 1 in my closing thought. James 1, he says, Get rid of all the filth and evil of your lives and humbly accept the Word God has planted in your hearts. That's the Bible. Accept God's Word because it has the power to save your soul. That is, you and I, if we would choose today to believe that what Jesus Christ did on the cross 2,000 years ago, his death, his burial, his resurrection, if I, going this way, my own way, choosing my free will like Adam and Eve, eating the apple, doing wrong, simply would turn over my shoulder and say, Jesus, I believe, and we make that turn, it's called repentance, and say, Lord, I'll follow you the rest of my life. Jesus promises to save our soul and give us eternal life. He says this, don't just listen to God's Word. Do what it says, or you're fooling yourself. But if you do what it says, don't forget what you heard. God will bless you for doing it. How many can say that's what I want? Me too. I want to encourage you. They'll leave this up a while if you're interested in writing it down. But I hope everybody has a good, a good Bible, whether it's digital, whether it's on page, the ESV, NIV, NLT, my favorite versions, Get a good study Bible. The easiest to read is the NLT. My favorite Bible of all time is the Spirit-Filled Life Study Bible. It's it's scholarly. It's well done. It's supportive of the Spirit-Filled Life. Download our church app. Get a Bible reading plan. But the main thing is open God's Word. Spend some time in with it. It'll be a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. He's worthy of our praise this morning, isn't he? Praise the Lord. Let's... uh, let, let, let's close in prayer this morning. Holy Spirit, we just want to say yes. Words are not enough to say my gratitude because God loved me so much he sent Christ the Son. And Lord, I choose today to believe your word. I choose to be like Father Abraham. Believe what's written and act upon it. Certainly in terms of my salvation but also, Lord, the way I treat people. I want to treat my enemies in a biblical way, people I love, my wife. I-, I want to live by your word, and I believe that's the heartbeat of all of us today. So, Lord, we just ask you today, help us. Help us open the book and let it be a benefit to us all. In Jesus' name. Let's close with one last song and, and prayer, and then we'll dismiss. We'd like to make opportunity to pray for you about anything that may be in your heart. Your world's probably going to be the same as it was when you left it. If you missed the prayer opportunity earlier or maybe something that we shared this morning might have deeply touched your heart. But perhaps you're here today and you say, Pastor, I used to really be close to God, but I just kind of got away. I didn't mean to do it. I don't know how it happened, but I look where I am today at where I used to be and it kind of makes me sad. I, I, I want to get right with God today. You may want to come and let somebody pray for you. You say, why is it necessary to come forwards for prayer? Well, first of all, it does nothing for me, and it does nothing for our church. This is not just a stage, and this is not just carpet. This is an altar dedicated to God. And the symbolism that's real is that when you come for prayer, something like this, you're saying, I want to walk away from my own life. I'm ready to walk towards God. Yeah, yeah. And maybe you're here today and say, Pastor, I, I don't even know if I died today, if I'd go to heaven or hell, but I've heard the truth about God's word today, and And I'm choosing today to believe and put my trust in Christ. And I want to give my life to Christ. I want to know Him as my Savior. I believe today, Pastor, that Jesus, just like you said in the Bible, He lived a perfect life. He died. He was buried. He rose from the dead. And He's alive today. And I want to follow Him as my Lord and Savior. If that's you, friend, we'd love to pray for you. I'm going to ask if you'll just slip out of your chair when we begin to sing and and meet someone at the cross over to my right and your left. Or you're right, rather. And uh, they'll talk with you about this decision. They'll pray with you. They'll give you some things to help you. We will not embarrass you, but we'll help you as you make the greatest step of your life, a commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. Go ahead and begin to sing. Michael, our prayer team is coming to the front right now. They're here to pray for you about anything. But most importantly, if you feel drawn to Christ, you want to make a step to the Lord, we'll see you at the cross. I love you, and thanks for coming.